0: Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political, and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges internal communication is a crucial function that helps organizations achieve lasting change this podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity we really hope you enjoy listening
1: So, Alex, I'm really interested. With my future of work lens, I read an awful lot of material around the topic of culture and how we behave in groups. And I've read some material about anthropology. My most notable um, book on the topic, Anthrovision, by Gillian Tett, But I'm so, so curious, and I would love for you to share with us how you came to work in the field of anthropology, because it's something that I wish I'd known about in my 20s, because I think I would have found it so, so fascinating.
2: Yeah, thanks for that, Kat. And just thank you for having me on the podcast as well. It's a real, real pleasure, real honor to be here. You know, I'll be honest and say it's actually, it was quite a journey for me in my 20s as well. I actually took a, a module, I think, in my second year at university, the, fir- the first time I was at university, and I actually didn't like it. But I finished my, my first course, my first degree is in international relations, actually, and then I worked for a non-profit after that that did a lot of overseas work, volunteer-based development projects, etc., and actually our head of training was an anthropologist. And I was so inspired by him and everything that he said, just different ways of thinking about people's experiences, different ways of understanding things. I was so inspired by him that I actually told him, Daryl, I'm coming for your job and I'm going to have your office and your job someday. And I just remember his his response. He's, he's about my father's age. And he said, that's great. <laughs> I absolutely love to hear that. And I think that'd be brilliant. So that was 13 years ago. And then I, I did some postgraduate study, eventually completed my PhD at the University of Edinburgh, and I absolutely loved it. I, I love teaching so much. I won two teaching awards along the way across the whole university. And then I became a teaching fellow, which is a fixed-term lecturer in my department at Edinburgh. And like you say, Kat, I love what anthropology can do in terms of helping us understand the world. And for those listeners, if you've not checked out Jelly and Ted's book, AnthroVision, I highly recommend it. It's a nice little intro to what we do, how we think about things. But we also have, kind of beyond Jillian, Ted, and hopefully myself, we have an awful PR problem. Like you said, Kat, a lot of us don't know what it is. We hadn't heard about it until later in life. And we can often isolate ourselves from really the practical applied side of putting our uh, our work to to use in the world.
1: I just want to ask you, actually, because it strikes me that I've probably done a terrible disservice to anthropology by not describing it well for our listeners. Tell us
2: what anthropology is, in essence. Yeah, so I think that's probably a good move, a wise move. Anthropology, broadly speaking, is the study of what makes us human. So it is very broad. For better or worse, it can encompass all kinds of things. So you could be a political anthropologist, you could be a workplace anthropologist, kind of specializing in these different topics. But really, at the end of the day, anthropology is about—it's a way of seeing the world and understanding things. So instead of taking a top-down view of the world and saying this is what it looks like from 30,000 feet because this is what the figures and statistics tell us. It's about actually understanding how people live and experience the world, not taking anything for granted. And it's very tied to a research method called ethnography, which is a qualitative spend time with people, spend time, really try to walk a mile in their shoes to understand how they see things, not from how you think they understand things, what that's... Uh, from an IC role or HR role, but actually, what does it feel like to work on the front line from the viewpoint of someone who works on the front line? And so a lot of what I do is to think about how we um, apply that way of seeing things, that way of understanding and that way of thinking about topics in the world of work. There's so much I think that we we need to look at through that lens just to understand, again, that frontline experience, to understand all the pressures, the wider context that As you say, Kat, people are really worried about burnout. People are really worried about what the future of work holds. And I think actually having this perspective is absolutely vital. And I think it's part of how we think, how we understand, and how we hopefully reimagine and remake the future of work.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really, really balancing to hear. I use that word very deliberately because it strikes me that our commercial worlds Our working worlds are infinitely skewed now towards data and numbers. And actually what we're really missing are the emotionally connective stories and the sharing of anecdotes about the lived reality of what our lives are like as human beings that happen to work.
2: Yeah, and and that's why, as you said in the intro, one of my mantras is that numbers have faces and statistics have stories. I think it's so important; it's so vital for us to actually capture and understand those stories. If we look at, you know, the cost of burnout in this country seventeen point five million working days lost to mental health and stress, depression, anxiety. Okay, that's a huge number one hundred eighteen billion pounds is the numerical cost, according to the Mental Health Foundation and LSE, but what does that actually feel like? What does that actually feel like on the ground for someone who is struggling with that? As, as I'll put my hand up and say I've struggled with depression and anxiety myself in the past. Obviously, for, for many of us, it's been highly exacerbated and amplified over the pandemic. What is that actually like? And what is that like for teams that are supporting colleagues through that? What's that like for leaders who maybe don't always have the resources or the skill to support colleagues that are facing those sorts of things. So I think it's it's about kind of, Jillian Tet uses this phrase of, of not taking a bird's eye view, but taking a worm's eye view. And that there's actually a need for that in terms of, again, just understanding what's the lived human experience, not just the abstracted, here's what the numbers say. That is important, but it's also important to understand the decisions that, that businesses make, that leaders make have a human toll, not just a P&L toll.
0: So, Alex, thank you so much for explaining. And me and you have talked so passionately, haven't we, in the past about understanding humans and the qualitative side of things and the emotional intelligence and actually how the theory of anthropology and the theory of that can open up so many doors to help us in our role as internal communicators and and to help us in in organisations. And sometimes we've talked about this in the podcast as well, this concern that we're trying to be too numerical or process driven in designing the right communication framework rather than leading with the human emotional understanding aspect of everything. And you touched on there things like burnout with the cost of that to businesses. And you know, and I still think we're trying to figure out what work should look and feel like as an employer and an employee. But in your work, who spends that time sort of understanding that and and talks to I'm sure many clients facing a range of issues, what do you think in your view is really is that that most pressing issue that's facing organizations today?
2: I love what you said, Jen, about the importance of storytelling. You know, just, just to back up for a second. I think that's one thing that humans do uniquely, right? Is we tell stories. It's it's what we do when we're at the pub with friends. We tell stories about oh remember when this happened or oh this happened at work or you know we tell we still t- tell stories about our family members. Humans tell stories. We don't tell statistics. That's a learned behavior. But actually, there's something deeply human and as you say, emotive about stories. That again, we're human beings. We're not as rational as we think we are, and actually engaging with that emotional side of things, with that empathetic side of things, is vitally important. But in terms of the big issue, I actually think there's a storm. There's a there's a big kind of nexus of related issues. And I know it's very much on the front of your minds as well, just in terms of this thing with burnout and retention and attrition and how employee health and well-being are really under stress. As I said earlier, I think there's a business side of that. I think there's a business side of when you lose people, there's hiring, replacing having the skills and the capacity to to bounce back and rebound after the storm passes but there's also a cultural side in terms of what's lost when people leave in terms of your morale in terms of the relationships at work that could make things happen right you might have a really influential person who's connected across a lot of different teams and they burn out for you know complex nexus of reasons and when they're not there actually a lot of things kind of fall off off the rails a little bit and then there's that human side of again, what does that actually mean for people when they're struggling to maintain boundaries, when they're struggling with their workload? I think burnout's real. I think there are a lot of factors to this. I know Kat, you and I have spoken before about you know our, our sense of connection has become strained. There's more distance between colleagues. We might've had eroded trust with leaders. And I think if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, we still haven't figured out hybrid. You know, And you see so much out there um, on individual resilience and toughness, but honestly, I think that's such a dangerous way of looking at things because it places the responsibility to avoid and prevent burnout on the individual as opposed to looking at contextually what's causing that. What are the environmental and cultural factors that are really weighing on people? So part of the storytelling thing isn't that we look at isolated statistics, but it's actually we tell that full story of what's causing this. Right. And it could be actually you're working a sixty hour week. Actually, you know, you don't feel very recognized and seen by managers and leaders. You don't always have those people that you can reach out to for support or to just blow off a little steam and say, Hey, this happened. What do you think I should do about it? So there's there's a whole wider picture to what's going on beyond just the we often think directly, oh burnout, we see statistics on this. What's that story? And one of the things I say about understanding that and understanding those contextual factors is that I think even Michael Phelps drowns if the wave is big enough, you know? Individual resilience takes us so far. It is important. But actually, I think systematically, we're kind of at this point where we're a little bit beyond that. Something else needs to change in the environment, not just learn to swim better. And then to compound that, Jen, if, if I might, I think, you know, I don't think leaders are always aware these issues. And I think that's, that's partly, I think that's multifaceted. Again, I think sometimes leaders, you know, they might think, oh, we're in the same company, we're in the same boat. I don't think we are. I think we're all in the same storm, but not the same boat. We all experience that storm a little bit differently. And I think because of that, leaders aren't always aware of how prevalent these issues are, or what they're actually, what's actually going on on the ground for a lot of people. Again, there's so much we could say about how work is making us sick. There's a a great piece in the Financial Times from December 2022 talking about that. And again, there's just so many factors of strain that are really, really hurting us. And so in in organizational culture theory, there's, there's what's called the iceberg of ignorance in terms of collectively on the bottom, you know, across all frontline employees, they'll have a strong sense of all the frontline issues that they're facing. But as that gets filtered up the organization, leaders are aware of only a tiny bit of what's actually going on what the full picture is on the ground and i think actually this 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 need for storytelling this need for good qualitative research and and for good employee listening i think is part of how we cut through that to actually make leaders more aware and better equipped really to address some of these issues
1: can i just interject i think what you're saying is so interesting i'm really interested in the topic of resilience because more and more is being made of it in the media, perhaps not necessarily the mainstream media per se, but certainly, you know, I'm sure if you ran a search, you would see a groundswell of articles on the topic of resilience. And and I guess to some extent right now, what I'm going to say, I speak from personal experience of, of resilience and grief, bereavement and loss and my experience of those things in my 20s and very early 30s is that you know, when the rubber hits the road, you don't have a choice. You just have to get on and do because what is the alternative? And I think the really empowering and comforting thing that we can do to build resilience in one another is to be open and to share our stories of overcoming difficulty. I 100% agree, you know, placing the burden of responsibility on the individual to deal with the resilience burnout issue isn't helpful because part of the reason why we're all close to burnout is a fear of somehow being excluded from our work. Am I good enough to stay here? Will I be made redundant if I raise my hand and say that I'm not coping too well right now? And so on. I think conversations about how we cope and get through challenging times together are infinitely helpful. And I'll give you two little tiny examples of that. One in our work at Working the Future, we ran a project last year where we encouraged a teams of hybrid workers who were predominantly working from home to share their stories amongst one another of what things they did to build boundaries and routines while working from home that helped to separate the day psychologically into work and home, because otherwise, as we all know, there's this complex blurring of boundaries where it actually now, you know, work and life are so integrated that for somebody that doesn't pay really close attention to the detail, you can become all consumed by work. And those teams that we worked with were hugely—you um, could tell by you know that literally that as much as it was a Zoom, you know, it was an online uh, workshop the tone of the conversation just changed when people started sharing these stories and it became quite animated and and energetic. But the other thing that I absolutely love, and I can't remember whether you and I have talked about this before, Alex, is the work that has been done in the field of positive psychology at the University of, is it North Carolina Chapel Hill by Barbara Fredrickson, who wrote this book, Love. 2.0 where she argues that our notion of love is misunderstood and actually if you boil it down to kind of a neurochemical perspective when you have a really wholesome nurturing reinvigorating conversation with somebody and I think we all know what that feels like because it's the kind of conversation and interaction that leaves us feeling better about the world for the rest of the day, neurochemically, your vagus nerve kind of chimes into life and is strengthened, and that in turn boosts your immune system, which presumably then goes on to explain, you know these studies um, that have been done, like the blue zone studies of why certain pockets and groups of people live such long flourishing lives, sociality, our ability to connect and live in harmony and community with one another absolutely is a linchpin to a longer well-lived life and I I think personally I don't know whether you know again it's just my view I just think not having conversations about stress and anxiety and pretending that everything is okay and that we can go back to normal and the pandemic never happened. I think that is the worst mistake we can make.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with you, Kat. And I think, I think that's also um, what you say about those conversations that kind of just bring life to you. I I think every time I, I speak with you and Jen, I honestly have those kinds of conversations where I'm just nodding my head and just thinking, yeah, I I so resonate with that. You know, it's always amazing and inspiring to find like-minded people who are experiencing similar things, have similar thoughts, sometimes slightly different thoughts and different approaches to things. But actually, you know, it's that moment when you kind of feel like, Ooh, I found my people, you know, that's such a powerful and inspiring and enabling moment. And I think it's so vital, but I think because of, our hybrid world in terms of how we communicate. So much of our communication is very point-to-point. It's very transactional. I'll ping you on Teams. We'll have a quick five-minute call because I have a question for you, as opposed to, I think there's so much to be said about creating the space to have those rich conversations. And sometimes that is creating the virtual space of having time in your diary. But also, I think, and, and I think there's an opportunity for IC practitioners and leaders to actually kind of what you've just referred to, Kat, of actually making that emotional space in terms of leading those conversations, being vulnerable, and sharing your own experiences. I've always thought of vulnerability as one of the most powerful things that you can do to lead people. When I used to tell my students all the time, within the first 15 minutes of meeting them, hey, if you struggle with mental health, depression, anxiety, I'm here for you because I know how that feels. That's such a powerful thing that created space for my students to know, hey, I might have someone else that is actually responsible for me in terms of, you know, my 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 go-to person for those things, but I don't feel like I can actually speak with them about that. I feel like I can with Alex. You know, I think creating that space as a leader when you're responsible for people to sp- for people to speak up, for people to not be perfect, is such a massive, massive, massive thing we need to do, and that we need to be better and bolder at.
0: That's so much fascinating stuff, Alex. And I, I want to pass over to, to Dom as well, as obviously works a lot in the leadership space. And we've talked about, you know, the issues that organisations are facing from this burnout, how it needs to feel, emotional conversation. But you, as you also talked about, the iceberg issue where... I think there was a stat, is it? Like four percent of leaders actually know what the problems are in organisations. But you're saying as well that we need to get that sense of vulnerability, and how do we find those solutions to these issues? We want to find solutions to these issues, but do you think leaders are ready for that kind of vulnerability? And I don't know if what and how that works.
3: Well, it, I mean, it's great to hear Alex saying that because I know it's something we've covered a lot in these uh, sessions as well. But I think they probably are, but many leaders get a bit spooked by the word vulnerability. And I think leaders have been educated to do exactly the opposite over the course of their uh, careers. So when you talk about vulnerability, I think you have to explain what you mean by it, as as Alex just did, which is sharing your experiences. I think one of the things we found during COVID was that where leaders – up, were up front about the challenges they were facing, how they were finding it difficult adapting, whether they were finding tech difficult, all that sort of stuff, they had much stronger and more effective bonds with their teams, and it was a good learning experience. So to answer your question, I think we have to explain very carefully as communicators what we mean by vulnerability, and then give leaders opportunities to do it by sharing their experience, by asking questions, and by not expecting them to be broadcasters all the time by helping them have better conversations and acquiring the skills to have conversations and how to to frame things. I mean, Alex, it would be great to get your experience of how you've seen leaders be more vulnerable and the benefits that's brought.
2: Yeah. I, again, I, I totally agree with you, Dom, that actually vulnerability in a sense is just sharing your experience. I think there is something so powerful in what you just said of, and if we just pause and think about the words, shared experience, right? If you see the CEO of your company, hey, they, they, she also struggles with teams. You know, she's she's, uh, she's as technically lost as I might be or frustrated with things. Again, it's just showing that kind of what we're, um, you know, going back to with this conversation, it's showing the human side of leaders, that leaders don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be infallible. But actually, I know there are different schools of thought about this, but actually if leaders are more human, I think people will resonate with them a bit stronger and connect with them a bit stronger. I know some people might say that's weak. I actually think there's so much strength in actually being able to put up your hand and say, actually, hey, you know what? I struggle with this sometimes too. So if you do, that's okay. As a leader, I know a lot. There's some things I don't know. I don't always know, but I can point you to who can. I think role modeling those, those kinds of behaviors, I think humility is one of the most important values a leader can have. And again, that extends to being vulnerable. That extends to being able to put their hand up to say, you know what? Maybe I didn't get this right. Maybe I don't know. That doesn't mean I don't know anything, but it means that I'm a human being just like you because we can easily fall into that trap that our leaders are infallible. But actually when, when leaders actually take the initiative to show that they're not, I think they can actually do a lot more with connecting people. They're not a client of mine, but I think Microsoft and I think Satya Nadella actually does a really good job of that, of being more empathetically led than certainly a lot of the other leaders in big tech as an example.
1: I, I was just gonna add in there, because you you know you talked about humility. And humility is a cornerstone, is it not, of emotional intelligence? And, you know, all the academic institutions are saying these are the skill sets of the future. We have the tech to do the kind of heavy lifting, data driven work. What we need now is to have that complemented by empathic, emotionally intelligent workers. And leaders have to step up and step into that role I was saying to Jen and Dom before we came on air there's a very interesting recording and I'll send you the recording Alex as well because I'm glad to hear what you make of it offline but there's a recording of a panel that took place at this year's Davos and the chief executive of Vimeo Is there and what she's saying is actually it is incumbent on us as leaders now, as the grown-ups in the room, to adapt our behavior. You know, we can't chastise the children and young adults who are entering the workplace for having very, very different attitudes about the world because their attitudes come from the environment in which they've come of age. We are the ones that are supposed to be emotionally mature and able to understand ourselves. You can't expect a 21-year-old to have a seasoned understanding of him or herself because emotionally they are still quite young and naive, but it's our job to adapt and to role model and to bring people with us And that requires humility. Kat, I just want to jump in as well on this because I think that what we we all,
0: I think, are an absolute joyous agreement of the things that we need that that ports of emotion, conversation, leadership, role modeling. And then a lot of our listeners, you know, and we've talked about the issues and, and actually the solutions are in that sense of creating dialogue, vulnerability, behavior, and all those sides of things. And before we, we come on to perhaps listening in more detail, one thing I just wanted to interject on as well is, and Alex, I think you and I have spoken about this in the past is as internal communicators. Sometimes our go-to is to look at our comms framework as as the solution provider to what is a bigger issue and to look at hard metrics that are going to tell us, well, if we talk and do more newsletters or more things over here, that's going to solve the problems. I think we, we all know the problems are far more complex and we're also in a very culturally challenging, changing space as well. But I think my, my question about you is, Alex, as well, is how do we make the business case as internal communicators? This is actually about bringing us in to help this be facilitated rather than putting it in this, this, this box that perhaps we originated from when our skills are so much more broader and bigger than that. And can we use more data, more rich data, contextual data to help make those arguments?
2: Yeah. And, and can we IC help generate and co-create that data, right? Can we go out and collect it? I mean, I think, I think all of you know, I'm such a big believer in what IC can be and what we can do, because I think that we should be the eyes and ears of the organization on not just as broadcasters, but also on employees' behalf, right? It's kind of a two-way exchange of, yes, we broadcast, but also we listen, we look out for things. We should be close to the ground. And so in terms of where we fit into creating the solution, I think we're the hinge on which it should actually you know, work. I think we should be partnered in not replacing or having people, culture, EX teams. They shouldn't be replacing us, but we should be working hand-in-hand with them to actually go out, collect that data, collect that understanding, and take it to them and say, okay, here's what's going on. How can we co-create solutions as a team it's not just passing the baton and saying, now go fix it, or you know being replaced by them. These are skill sets, as you say, Jen, that actually for us as listeners, as storytellers, such a valuable, unique skill set within an organization that actually expecting a people, culture, EX team to have, that may not actually be their speciality. But it, it could be, it should be ours in terms of listening and telling stories. So I think there's, there's, there's a vital role for us to play in that sort of two-week communication or listening
1: so just on that score then because that is so so interesting because clearly listening is the receiving part of communication how do we as internal communicators prioritize two-way listening you know the too often i sense there's too much onus placed on the the giving of information. Actually, we need to become way better at receiving. But not only do we as a profession need to improve that skill set, we need to prioritize the act of listening at the heart of an organization. Any thoughts for how we go about doing that?
2: It's a really good question, yeah, I Kat. I, th- I think a lot of it is, as you say, making it a priority, making it something that that People have space to engage with. I think one of the challenges here is, especially if you want to create that space, I'll use that example of telling my students again about mental health. It may be that actually for three terms, not a single student comes up to me and actually says anything about that. But after working with that same student for three terms or dozens of the same students after three terms, 12 of them show up at my office hours one day to talk about it. We need broader time horizons when we think about creating space for these kinds of things. So you might have a regular quarterly listing session. I'd advise everyone to explore that. What does that look like in an organization? How might you even get some external support on that to have some fresh eyes and fresh ears if that would be something that's helpful? It may not be helpful in every situation, but actually getting some external perspective could be refreshing in terms of what's weird or what's odd will stand out. I think we need to understand that, again, sometimes the the uptake of these things can be low at first because we need to build trust, right? If people don't have that trust that we really do listen, that we really do empathize, and that we really take back and take on board what they're saying, they might be a bit skeptical. But actually, if we listen regularly, create that space that they know is routinely there, and people start to see, ooh, actually sharing my voice in that does make a difference. Here's how they're listening. Here's what they're doing off the back of that. It's a trust-building exercise. And as we all know, as communicators, as, as great listeners, trust takes time to build. That's, I think, probably our biggest challenge is we're not always given that time horizon of, you might be told, ooh, yeah, you ran that, that listening session and seven people out of our organization of 5,000 joined. It's obviously a failure. Well, actually, if those seven people feel heard and listened to and seen, have input, which won't be theirs alone, right? They're probably speaking on behalf of their own teams and their own colleagues. And actually, it could be the next time when you actually see that, oh, we did listen. We did take that feedback on board. We couldn't do everything they said. But here's what we think about that. Here's what we might do about here's about that. Here's what we might explore. It could be that actually 50 people show up next quarter, right? I can't guarantee that's necessarily how it will work, but we need to actually do that experimenting and give ourselves that chance as opposed to saying, ooh, yeah, we got a low response the first time. It was brand new. People didn't really understand it. We didn't necessarily pitch it well, recruit well. There's all kinds of reasons why it might not work the first time, but actually giving ourselves that time to experiment and learn as we listen, I think is important. And I think that's part of how we continuously prioritize it.
3: Alex, we've covered a huge amount of fantastic stuff. So just to to recap on what I think we've been saying amongst other things is the importance of leaders. The importance of leaders establishing relationships, of being more open, of sharing their experience, of being more vulnerable. We talked about that. We talked a lot about listening. I think and I think sometimes as communicators we forget the importance of listening and I love what you just said about don't give up if it doesn't work out effectively the first time round because I think from my own experience I know I've tried things like this in the past and, and have been tempted to give up so that's a great reassurance not to do it and then we also talked about the importance of building trust of keeping going in terms of uh, the messages you're sending but also the way in which we involve people so most listeners will be thinking there's a lot here so let me ask you a very difficult question. I think to bring us into land, Alex, which is, what one thing should uh, an internal communicator listening to this take away? Do you think what's the one big thing you'd like them to take away?
2: You know, summing things up into one sentence is a really difficult thing for an anthropologist to do because <laughs> if you've seen our books, it's just a lot of stories and a lot of of detail. But it, honestly, if I, I think if I'd say one thing, it's it's to embrace that two way role, really own it, really step into it. I think we have not just an opportunity to support our businesses and increase the profile of what we do. I think we have a responsibility to do that listening, to amplify that employee voice. And again, I think there's, I think so much of, of that trust building within an organization, I think IC has a huge opportunity to play there. Yes, kind of as a mediator between leaders and employees, but actually IC is kind of the face of the organization in that sense right? We're not just building that rapport and that trust with leaders, but also building that relationship between employees and the organization itself. And I think that there's a huge opportunity there that comes with, again, listening, empathizing, understanding those stories, and, and really being an advocate, I think. I, I know that could can be fraught sometimes, depending on the on the dynamics and the politics of an organization, but actually being an advocate for people. I think that's how you build that trust as well. If you're seen to stand up for employees to raise their concerns, again, it doesn't mean you're always going to walk away with what they want. That's okay. But actually having the vulnerability and transparency to say, we spoke up, here's what we were told, here's what we can try to do about it. I think that's another part of that two-way role and that two-way function that goes beyond broadcasting.
3: And I think as you're saying that, Alex, it probably helps many communicators resolve that tension, I think we still feel, which is who do we serve? Are we there to be the mouthpiece of the organization? Are we there to serve the people who work for it? I think if we can help fashion conversation and increase listening, it helps to resolve that as well.
2: Well, I think, I think at, the end of the way, uh, at the end of the day as well, Dom, if we are broadcasting good messages but also speaking up on behalf of employees and creating a better culture, a better workplace, a better work experience, I mean, surely that's a win for everyone. You know, In terms of the engagement, productivity, morale, that's a win for the business in terms of, Actually, people feel like their work isn't awful. They feel valued, they feel seen, they feel heard. That's a win for them. So it shouldn't be a, an either or. I think we can often think that leaders and employees are kind of in conflict with each other. I don't think it necessarily has to be the case. And I think you know the best organizations are the ones where we actually say, hey, we're actually united working together on a common goal. Sometimes we, we might clash, but that doesn't have to be most of the time we can actually find and co-create solutions that work for all of us.
0: That was amazing. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us on the podcast today. It's really a real pleasure. And and as I say, I I know we'll keep chatting because I love the field of of cultural anthropology, I think. And I would recommend any listener to go away and delve into that and what it means and how we can really use those skills to our advantage. Because as so clearly has been said by Alex, the opportunity is there for us to play a really significant role. So thank you, Alex. And thank you all for tuning into this episode. And we hope for you to hear from us again soon. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.